0: Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. The With your Keepers of Mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman, Sanctum Socorum, and be inspired.
1: Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. With me tonight... Our Keeper Bob. Hello, hello. And Keeper Jen. Good evening. And I'm Keeper Mark. And tonight, we turn to the Red Planet as we examine Stanley G. Weinbaum's A Martian Odyssey.
2: Early in the 21st century, nearly 20 years after the invention of atomic power, and 10 years after the first lunar landing, the four-man crew of the Ares has landed on Mars in the Mare Samarium. A week after the landing, Dick Jarvis, the ship's American chemist, sets out south in an auxiliary rocket to photograph the landscape. Eight hundred miles out, the engine on Jarvis's rocket gives out, and he crash-lands into one of the Thial regions. Rather than sit and wait for rescue, Jarvis decides to walk back north to the Aries.
1: Great. Yeah, I thought this is a really dense story for being so short and being so old in the context of what we think of in terms of modern scientific storytelling.
2: It it is old. Yeah. This is 1934. It is old.
1: It's just a very cool world building setting because as Jarvis treks north, you flesh out this terrain and landscape of Mars in a way that's reminiscent of Burroughs, but a much more scientific approach than Burroughs would ever take. Uh, I just found it really fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. I I think, I mean, it's much more H.G. Wells than Burroughs in my mind.
2: Well, and since you're going to mention Burroughs, one of Weinbaum's contemporaries, H.P. Lovecraft, stated... Weinbaum's writing was ingenious, and he stood miles above the other Pulp Fiction writers in his creation of genuinely alien worlds in a comparison to Edgar Rice Burroughs and his inane stories of egg-laying princesses. (laughs) So, you are not alone in that. People were universally a fan of Weinbaum and his stories because in the past, if there was ants, they were ant men. And if there were birds, they were bird men. And his aliens were truly aliens. And that was actually right. really new.
1: It was so much about the stories about the alienness and describing from the context of Jarvis. And not only Jarvis, who's this American, but he's one of a singular nationality, right? He's got this sort of like otherness compared to his companions even, which is, you know, an echo of Represented by feels.
2: an interesting number of dialects. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. But, but it, it kind of goes into a lot more of the philosophical aspects of what does it mean to communicate? What does it mean to have sentience. And I just I was fascinated by that. And the fact that it was written in 1934 is just light years ahead of the things that were being written at the time. And I can see why it's very compelling. And to me, one of the most compelling aspects is that science still holds up. There are obviously assumptions about what space travel and Mars and, and atomic the, power, yeah, and atomic power, those things are like, but the physiology aspects, the, the fact that they're prepared for the inclement weather where suddenly after the sun sets, the temperature drops to negative 60 degrees, you know, and it's these sort of things that are part of the context of Jarvis's experience. It's just really neat to see that.
2: Well, in talking about getting the science right, he even talks about how, you know, except for a half dozen moon expeditions, they're the first people to step onto another world. Well, between 1969 and 72, the Apollo mission had six manned Moon
1: landings. That's <laughs> it. He nailed that one. <laughs> like. It's all by the time frame because, you know, 10 years later, we should be Mars. But that wasn't yeah. possible in the context of what people were thinking in the 60s. The next thing is this first step is taking us to the moon. But it's a natural consequence to follow that up in short order by going to explore the inner planets of the solar system. Because that's that's what we do. It's exploration.
2: And I love his Brief mention of the failed attempt to send men to Venus.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think he, he's in reading some more about this author. I know he's had a very short writing career because he died early in his life. He died at 34. Uh, yeah, and just it's amazing to think. What else could have been part of this, his offerings, you know, to this world in this in this kind of conversation with the people that were writing at the same time with the Asimovs, with the Arthur C. Clarks, you know, that would have come a few years later and, and down the line and just see what that would have been like for an influence. It would have been neat to see.
3: Right. I would have loved to have seen Tweel in a sequel.
2: Well, yeah. Tweel's people get mentioned again. Like Mark said, he died really early. I mean, he published this was his second published story. It was his first published sci-fi story. He died 17 months later. Wow. Oof. In that time, he had already published the serialized romance novel, which was his first published thing, and 13 short stories in 17 months. That's what we got. And in those 13 short stories, he set a number of other stories in our solar system, and all of the rules applied. They all cross-referenced each other. He built his solar system and his quote unquote universe of the solar system. And then after he died, 15 further stories and two additional novels were posthumously published. So this guy was prolific mm. for someone who got kicked out of college for taking a test for somebody. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. The rules certainly didn't apply to him. I, I think, yeah, the stories dated in mostly interesting ways. The whole 20 years after the first atomic blast, which killed the man who discovered it, 10 years later, they shot someone to the moon using atomic power. Okay, those are dated thoughts and kind of cute. And when they start talking about language, it gets a little, yeah, that's how people were back then. But
3: But, hey, even Borneo would have seemed like home after this crazy place.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That,
3: That was probably the one quote that I was like, Uh, Okay, yeah, product if it's time. Because every book from Appendix N or every author from... That contemporary field. They get that one, right? They get that gimme. and the
2: thing is, in the case of Weinbaum as opposed to Lovecraft, in the case of, of Weinbaum, it really is sort of that passive, accepted thinking of the time without any real malice behind it. Whereas Lovecraft, there's definitely a lot of other things behind some of the things that he says and does. So I'm tempted to give Weinbaum a pass really because, yeah... That's where society was back then, and we're further along now. But they're still great stories, and oh my god, the stories are so great! And plus, it's not like you know he doesn't give posts to the French too. So,
1: <laughs> and to put it in a bit of context, so that for the the listeners, it's this is mentioned. He's an author that's mentioned in Appendix N by Gary Gygax, but it's not specified which stories he drew from inspiration from, or how it even relates to D anD. d But it's kind of up to the readers at this point to interpret that. And my take on this is that there is so much detail in terms of the reasoning, or the scientific reasoning, or the pathology, or just the biology behind these creatures that it sort of creates, uh, you know, the GM's toolkit, right? In terms of if you're going to be building your dungeon, why do the monsters hang out in this room? You know, why? It's are, why is the early ecology
2: pitching? of articles. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Why does the their treasure get represented by, you know, this aspect of the dungeon? And it, it just makes you think about these connections. Whereas I think a lot of the appendix and, and or, or the authors that, you know, might compare them to in terms of the bur- burrows and things like that is not really so much about exploring that. It's exploring the otherworldliness and the strange encounters. And it's just interesting to see the webbing behind it. And my takeaway from that is as a judge, it's something that you often have players think about right the players approach this from a, a scientific a reasoning basis in in many cases some of them don't obviously, but those that do it's neat to reward them you know with some Elements of, of reality or, or elements of reasoning, you know, in, in the case of this. So
2: and the depth
1: that he goes into
2: like, well, and so when I came out of my rocket, I grabbed this, this and I grabbed the water tank. And you're like, but the water tank weighs a ton. He's like, well, the water tank was mostly empty and your know, gravity is here. So it weighed about 250 pounds. And so I only weigh this much in this gravity. And so it was no problem. And. I just stopped. I was like, that is brilliant.
3: <laughs> exactly. They accounted for encumbrance.
2: Other than John Carter leaping across Mars because of the gravity difference, I've never really seen someone tackle... Encumbrance that way? Well, just the gravity difference in a story this old. If you read a lot of the, the 20s and 30s and even some of the early stories of the 40s where people go to venus or they go to mars or they go to the moon it's just earth gravity it's just you know they just walk around and there's an atmosphere and maybe it's hot and jungle like and here he's talking about the atmosphere here is very very thin sure mars really isn't breathable but you know if they just stepped outside and died it wouldn't have been a short story it'd be a very short story right (laughs) you know he tackles the gravity and then and and the equipment he
3: gathers in a hurry makes absolute sense too
2: Yes, and then everything he encounters, with the exception of one creature, all makes sense in the Martian landscape. And it's in the other stories you find that the other creature isn't from Mars.
1: Mm.
3: Well, that that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah,
1: it doesn't surprise me given some of the, the hints that are provided in the dialogue that he attempts to have with Tweel and the way that that communication evolves. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of hinted at in that case, but...
2: And I also like the fact that he describes the creatures. He doesn't give the creatures name names. The creatures get kind of the the quick name that you would if you just saw something. I, I don't know what it is. It's a mound builder or it's a pyramid builder. The names he gives these creatures are just what the person who encountered them is calling them for lack of a name. And that's kind of refreshing too. And that's also very DCC. You know, they're not goblins. They're not orcs.
3: Well, as opposed to Twill, because that was a the quote-unquote
2: name. Quote, unquote,
3: name. Yeah. Right. He still doesn't know what Twill is.
1: <laughs> no. But I it, don't know what th- Twill is.
3: To me, it's kind of like the Minotaur versus a Minotaur.
1: Yeah, but, but exactly. But Twill is, a, is such a great companion and, and sort of foil for him as a fellow explorer, because he befriends him, but you get the sense that Twill is is almost patronizing him, in a, in a sense, as he goes through this attempt oh, yeah. to communicate with him. And, oh, yeah. and the, the Tweel takes on this this aspect of greater intelligence, the belying is sort of a curious appearance to an earthling.
2: Well, and Tweel's language use, where he could point to something and Tweel would call it something, and then he'd point to it again and Twi'el would call it something else. It's almost like Twi'el's language is not just... Naming something that is not just a rock, it is this particular rock at this particular time. And so, when you ask again, it's now this particular rock at this particular time, not that particular time, because that
3: particular time is gone. Right. It's almost that different intelligence, which is why they were able to communicate. I, I'm i with Mark. I think Tweel was just kind of talking down to Jarvis with. Oh,
2: definitely. Tweel is
3: one and one, two. Yeah. is far <laughs> more <laughs> <two> intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> and. 224.
2: <laughs> And they tie that in when they're talking about the various languages on Earth that they don't necessarily refer to nicely, but that don't have a word for rain, but they've got a word for freezing rain. They don't have a word for snow. They've got 50 words for snow because they're specifics as opposed to generalities. And I think okay. Tweel's language is incredibly specific because he is incredibly intelligent and can make those specific points. In some ways, you can kind of feel that Tweel is frustrated and kind of humored by, okay, well, this little thing is intelligent and, and it saved me, but I, I've got to really dumb this down. Okay, so 1 plus 1 is 2, so mm-hmm. you're reasoning, but you don't know 2 plus 2 is 4, so you're not higher reasoning. And that actually comes into play as well. And you know, what they're saying with like 10 or 12 words— in English, he is communicating complex concepts back to this little human who is, <laughs> who is great. Well, and not just 112, but his usage of it and when and how
0: yeah.
3: oh, it yeah. was
2: all it was all context. And it was brilliant. And I think as a judge, it really gives me some ideas for tools to make something truly alien, introduce something that doesn't speak the language and with a bit of pre-planning, because I'm not a smartest wheel, figure out some ways to go with that, to interact with a party without just power word blah.
1: I think that the key thing that was attractive about this story was that a lot of that is left up to the reader in the end. And it's unsolved in the sense that you know you don't have a lot of this is presented and there's something that is resolved by the end of the presentation. You know, there's just a lot of mystery that's still left hanging. And Twiel is sort of a great example of that. But so are all the creatures that are encountered. You don't really get the sense of what they are or what they're doing there. And it's it's because these explorers are somewhat abandoned to being, you know, they're the first explorers. There. Well,
2: he's the chemist. He's not the
1: biologist. He's, yeah, exactly. very they're-
3: limited resources where they're at, too.
1: Right. I just love that the way that these creatures are presented, it, it just, it leaves so much up to the reader's interpretation and intentionally so. And I, I think that kind of leveraging what you said, Bob, is that when you present that to players who want or desire the type of resolution. In some ways, it might be nice to leave them with something that's unresolved, so that it promotes that mystery. And maybe later on in the line, there's there's more. There's a sequel. There's something that hooks them back in. But
2: you've got 17 that, months before you die. You can do a couple of sequels. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> now, I yeah. I have to say that I came away from this much like after reading our material for episode 16, which was what over two years ago maybe, (laughs) roughly around there, it was Lee Brackett's Purple Priestess of the Mad Moon. Mm -hmm. And in that, you had one character giving his account of his experiences with the interjected questions and even ridicule from his colleagues. And in that, well, very much in this as well, it kind of surprises me that Jarvis is a chemist. It's more like he's just the curious American because – In Purple Priestess, you had the overtones of that frustrated anthropologist because you have these different cultures and these linguistic conundrums. And Jarvis is even saying, if that's a language, I'm an alchemist. And (laughs) it just absolutely fascinates me. The concept of a different intelligence, which I think Weinbaum was avoiding saying a higher intelligence because it would have just been different. Not necessarily superior, but the linguistics possibilities here, as well as the different cultures. You don't know why these things were acting the way they were, but you never will unless you stick around and and you actually study them, as opposed to just seeing them as a threat.
2: Well, and also, he's not going to refer to something as a higher intelligence not in that time not that directly remember uh, we're not that far removed from tarzan being able to teach himself to read english even though he's been alone since he was an infant because he's a white man <laughs> so
3: well you did say that
2: people wouldn't accept that
3: he was less a uh, wine bomb is less burrows right you
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you yep, just is, you, sir. you just said that <laughs> But uh, but even so, at the time, you've got to look at the readership. And so Weinbaum never – Weinbaum definitely alludes to, no, 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 he's he's a lot more intelligent than than you're thinking. And people are like, ah, oh, no, he's just – he's he, from what you're saying, he's stupid. He's like, he's not stupid.
1: Well, that's interesting because I, the- I was reading those – like all the, you know, the counterpoints to Jarvis are these bias you know, individuals from these different nationalities who, on reflection, if they had been the ones to encounter – Twiel or in these creatures, you wouldn't have the same story. You would have, you know, a much different dialogue, you know, that's occurring between the recounting the story depending on who that was. Mm-hmm. And, and now that you quite say that, Bob, possibly it, murder hobo. Probably, yeah. quite possibly murder, murder hobo. And it's, it's it's kind of interesting that you say that bit, but because I'm interested in thinking is Weinbaum sort of trying to take the normal mainstream America audience for these pulps and showing them a mirror in a sense, right? Because is the normal reaction sort of the one of the captain, the astronomer, who's so dismissive of everything Jarvis says, so dismissive of the the idea of any other intelligence being out there. Is that the normalized view from the 1930s that's presented in Weinbaum's making commentary in terms of you have to be a little bit more open and receptive to this, especially his sardonic approach to that, right? He's he's just very dismissive of of anything the captain says. And it's, it's interesting sort of like, Dynamic, you know that that sort of gets revealed among the crew. But it's interesting that it made me think of what you're saying. Is that is that there more a little more depth to that, you know, in terms of what he's trying to get to across to his audience? Yeah.
2: The other thing that I thought of when I was reading this is I'm thinking about you know the author Weinbaum, and I'm thinking about how he is interacting with things and how. The others are dismissing these creatures as inferior, and he's really thinking about it. And then I had kind of the chilly thought of, this isn't that far, release-wise, from the outbreak of World War II. And there's already a lot of dark rumblings in Europe by 1934, 1935. And I kind of wonder if the politics of the time, which became the horrors of the time, but the, the politics of the time, I wonder if that didn't play in a little bit with his storytelling uh, I really have to read the rest of his stuff. That That's all there is to it. It's, <laughs> it's brilliant. I want, I want to read more, but I also want to understand more about where he was coming from as he was writing.
3: Well, and his creatures were fantastic, but I did enjoy the dialogue of, oh, yes, I did try to fix that no gee it never occurred to me to try to fix that Uh, yeah oh sure i could have but 20 miles in the bottom of the ship would have just been blown away and uh where would i be then so basically a a snide thanks for your input can i finish my story
2: (laughs) but speaking of those creatures let's speak of those creatures because holy crap there's stuff to stat in here that's just fantastic mark why don't you why don't you lead us off
1: well as i was going through this i couldn't help but think of you know these creatures are what wine does best this idea that this is a more science-based approach to the physiology of the creatures and how they tie into their environments so i i think each of the creatures that are presented you know there's especially like the, the pyramid building creature that's made of silica and it's, you know, its whole purpose, it's a seeming or apparent our purpose is to create these bricks of uh, a silica that it's it's breathing instead of the air. I thought it was one of the sort of fascinating, curious mysteries that's never solved in the Weinbaum story, but, you know, you could explore further in many ways in the context of a setting or a game as a judge, you know, what what are these types of other life forms in, in, in delving from science to it, draw inspiration for and so certainly like the creatures like i think i'm sure bob and jen you had the same thoughts that each of these creatures deserves their own statting from the point of view of oh, yeah. bringing them to the table and there's certainly directly you know the creatures like the dream beast the one with the tentacles that lives in this hole where it's perfect for a fantasy setting the mimic, you know, type creature from the old D D uh, part mimic, part doppelganger, yeah. exactly, yeah. Which it's just this, this lovely concept of it takes the thoughts and presents themselves, and and there's even a sentence I think that Jarvis sort of throws out there is that none of us can be safe anymore, right? In terms of it's almost the thing in sort of a precursor to that, we yeah. can't be sure that we are talking to the true other person that we think we are it could be the simulacrum that's formed from our our desires rather than anything else and and that's obviously what trapped tweel in the beginning that's you know that's what's almost lured jarvis uh into its grasp as well
3: and you have to wonder what tweel was thinking of oh, what yeah. drew tweel in yeah
1: right and, and yeah, the, the, this idea that, that, I mean, that's that's a really compelling creature. One of the other creatures that I just loved was the barrel creatures that Jarvis and Twi'el encounter towards the end of their journey. The ones in the mounds. The ones in the mounds. And, and they're just, they're so enigmatic. The hive mind? Yes. Or, or the, Maybe. the perceived hive mind. It's just like this mixture of strange and weird and threatening. There's this other worldliness to institute that's sort of like simplified in, in the way that they do this call and response with Jarvis's greeting. But then it becomes this ominous sort of routine that then they get trapped in their labyrinth, they get exposed to the idea that there's this weird ritual that they go through where they grind themselves to death, or they grind themselves into some other form. And it's, it's just all... You presented from Jarvis's point of view, you can see the Tweel is just as bemused or mystified by some of the behaviors because, you know, he's not encountered this creature before either. And they're they're in a pipeline.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it reminded me of, like, basic programming language because essentially, you know, it's go from point A to point B, run. Well, then there's you can't go to point B, so then you've got the new line in. Oh, well, if I say this, this thing moves out of my way, I can go to point B. And so they all do that as they encounter him, and then he gets in the way again, and so now it's, okay, add another line. That didn't do it. Add another line. That didn't do it. Add another line. Ouch. Okay, so we say ouch, and it moves out of our way and continue. It's just building kind of this (laughs) this computer program of how to deal with him. Yeah. In a time, you know, when basic wasn't basic in a time when
1: there weren't really computers.
2: And yeah. so that was just looking back on that. I'm like, I could program this.
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting idea. Like a monster statted up like a, like a computer program would be kind of a cool, cool feature. So.
3: I, I'm with you, Mark. These creatures are just begging for stats and interpretations, but I think any one of them will vary widely between each of us. Like if we Challenge were extended. each, if we were each to do the, barrel creatures they would be completely different i, I mean i didn't
2: challenge accepted
3: yeah okay <laughs> all right
2: let's you do say it. that you say that every episode <laughs> yeah you know it's it's good when all three of us it's a lot of fun when oh, all yeah. three of us stat something and and see the different directions we go and so what's yeah, on your list bob well of course tweel Tweel is definitely on my list. And I think the most alien thing about Tweel was to me the most horrific when it would leap up into the air. It's probably like leaping 80 feet up and then it comes down face first into the sand. That to me was with the most beak. alien, terrifying thing
3: but they with thought its
2: bendable beak. But
3: the brain was in its belly?
2: Its brain is in its abdomen, not its head. And so yeah. that explained that because, of course, you, uh, you uh, hey, I No. Much- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um of course you know, the, the dream beast, the mound builders. But also I thought Tweel's gun was really interesting. The gun that had no trigger, you squeezed it, and it worked by combining water and something else, these tiny little droplets to create instant steam and fire these little metal projectiles. And when he's comparing it to his gun, he's like, well, the range isn't as great, but it didn't need to be. And it was very efficient and quiet. That's very
3: telling. We were actually told exactly how that worked.
2: And they started figuring it out, because, of course, the main character is the chemist, so he's figuring Mm -hmm. out. It's this and maybe this, and they're creating a reaction to create this to generate the steam and see, so the chemist could figure that out, but he couldn't figure out that crystal egg or whatever it is the mound builders mm-hmm.
3: worshipped,
2: built, I don't know, protected, yeah, and or that found? I think would be fun to stat the thing that you, oh, well, I don't have a wart anymore and uh, and that's what oh, turned them all yeah. nasty was him encountering that, and well, you know, stealing it uh, taking because it, yeah. Because at the end of the day, he is still an American explorer in the 1930s. And just like Indiana Jones, if you find something cool, you steal it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's a lot of things you could do with that. I
3: I think you could make Twi'el as a class Mm. and, and maybe delve into their ecology, their culture just a little bit. Like, is that little case around its neck part of their race's occupational starting gear, maybe?
2: The, the mm. case that you know, pushed on one end, it opened, pushed in the middle, it closed with no seam. Better than a zipper.
3: And that's where its little gun was kept? Yeah. Because it clearly wasn't wearing clothing. It, it was kind of ostrich-like with the big, huge neck or something.
2: Could it really be a higher intelligence if it's wearing a fanny pack? Really? Could it? <laughs>
3: um, if it's waterproof and there's no seams, you bet.
2: But he also talks about how they're ostrich-like but they're not. I like They that. didn't
3: really have feathers. Right. It say? wasn't really yeah. an
2: ostrich, but it was the, the closest he could come. I liked that.
1: Yeah. It, it does have like the ability to like use his feathers to protect itself, like Jarvis uses his you know his seal to protect himself against the, the elements and things like that. It's
2: mentioned a few it times. Or when it planted its head in the sand and drew in its arms oh. and legs and looked like a bush.
1: <laughs> That's, I love that. Yeah. The, the, that was so dark. humorous. Yeah. But it's, the biologist it's just is like,
2: desert, desert creature. De- it's obviously a desert creature. It doesn't need water and it can do this. <laughs> Adaptive camouflage. Uh,
0: okay. Uh, so, okay. I can
2: but see sure. it. I can see doing that as a class. I might want to read um, the other short stories and make sure that I caught every appearance of, of Tweel's race so I could do them more justice. But yeah, I okay, can see now, doing that as a That's the race a
3: ton of class. homework, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you
2: okay, can maybe a, is is a class a, uh, based on this. That's
1: fine. Yeah, yeah or, or it could be a mutation. You know, in terms of like mutant crawl classics, where yeah, mm-hmm. the leaping ability, especially, is kind of this one of these unique things that is really cool and love to see that being in the players' hands, right? But it's not so powerful or so potent. You know, they couldn't be paired with like a, a basic character class like that's in mutant crawl classics you know 75 feet in the air coming down like a javelin that's kind of a fun attack or travel mechanism so
2: yeah
3: but i think we all agree they're too intelligent to be anyone's familiar
1: yeah yeah, yeah i think so
2: no, and actually i would like to see a uh, member of tweel's race as a wizard with like an elf as a familiar
1: <laughs> <laughs> i love it
2: Ouch. and everybody thinks the elf is this great powerful wizard but really he's just the pet <laughs> yeah
3: mm. Yeah. Okay. That evokes a lot of uh, hilarity. Yeah. <laughs> the silica, uh, the mound builders, mm-hmm. and those almost plastic bubbles that oh, yeah. somewhere coming out of the mound builder and Jarvis snaps off this comment to one of the colleagues of, well, I crushed a whole bunch of pieces. Would you like to come back in about 10,000 years to see if I planted some pyramid monsters? uh, (laughs) I I think my answer is resounding, yes, I would like to see this.
2: (laughs) That thing was so cool. And again, it gets back to the science. Here's what this thing does. It intakes... Silicon, it, it exhales silica, always in the same number of blocks. It just, the blocks get bigger as it gets bigger. And then it's releasing these bubble-like spores that carry kind of this scent almost that if it finds more silicon, it, it starts the process over.
3: It was terrifying until Tweel showed him that it wasn't a threat.
1: Yeah. Right, because it has no nerves. And it's it just has this, this idea of this creature that's not really a creature but it's mm-hmm. acting like a creature. Uh, that's yes. This,
3: it, it, it didn't even warrant a one, one, two. It was a rock.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, that's the thing. It's it's not intelligent. It's not mm-hmm. sentient. It's almost like a stone plant. It is just going through its life cycle.
3: Ooh, ooh. Speaking of plants, I have a prop idea.
1: Ooh. Oh, well, what you know are those you-
3: little those miniature plant pots that have like ornamentals or small grasses. Yeah. So put them on the table. Just move them around every so often. And as your NPCs or monsters approach the party, be sure to move the pots as they part to make oh. way.
0: <laughs> and, then,
3: and then, stay with me, if the players begin doing likewise, award some fleeting luck or give them a similar temporary bonus. Like, maybe the grasses help them next time they're in trouble. Because they, they, they didn't step on them.
2: them. They were like biophages or something. That. Uh,
3: d- some were like moss. It, it was the living grass. Like
2: grass. Yeah. Well, they were was, just
3: calling it living grass.
2: Well, no, there was a, they had a name for the for the first plant creatures they encountered. And it was I thought it was mm. like biophage or something. And then he encountered the grass that was like mm. two inches tall and had legs. Mm-hmm. They weren't really plants. And yeah, that was really neat. But there was also and all of the as they went other, to walk
3: through, it, all of a sudden they parted for him.
2: Because they didn't want to die. And
3: then they then they mm-hmm. just closed in around behind him. And I love that visual. Yeah. So I especially I thought that would be fun to slowly
2: doing it.
1: Yeah.
3: As opposed to putting miniatures on the table and stuff, just little touches like that.
1: Well, since we already are talking a little bit about props, do you want to tell yeah. us a little bit yeah. more about other props you thought of, Jen?
3: Um. That was my list. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Since we're already talking about props, to, a- to
2: be fair, this is not a prop-heavy adventure because no, I don't want to put a one-ton water tank at my table.
3: Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> let, let's not.
1: But you know, can, the, can you see me like the-, the gravity of Mars at your table, and yeah. we can you know have your players float around a little bit?
3: Um, I'm not cleaning that up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's plenty
2: of toy, you know, squirt guns and things like that that have really odd shapes. That you could paint up and use as a basis for, like, Tweel's gun. Mm -hmm. Sure, it's not really, you know, they're not going to be transparent like his was. But you don't want to hand your player something that's thin and made of glass. So don't do that. So you've got things like that. Um, You know, anything kind of space-oriented. You know, I'm sure you're not going to bring a spacesuit to the table because that'd be expensive. But, you know, serve them some – during during play, serve them some astronaut ice cream or some of the other dehydrated foods.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you talk about those kind of, like, elements to sort of fill out the setting. I, I couldn't help but think of, like, having maps of Mars, especially maps of Mars that recall some of the, the canal-esque oh, yeah. features oh, that, yeah. that were described by the astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli. Who, who was the first to basically state, you know, these are possibly canals that are created by a civilization. That became a fascination for the public in the late 19th century for for decades, yes. right? You know, in terms of was there an, an ancient civilization that – take and this, this comes out in White Mom's story to a certain extent too. This desiccated planet is the residue of what was possibly an ancient civilization. You don't encounter – that civilization in this in the planet, but you certainly see the signs of it. And I love the idea of that that map being sort of you know that kind of grand vision of Mars being part of the background for the judges' table,
3: as opposed to the current maps, right? Right,
1: right, which are you know the detailed scientific maps which offer you know that the obviously if you were setting something on Mars, you might want to have you know where the craters are and things like that. But this this is a, a, a more DCC approach in that you know, it's, it's more of a Doug Kovacs uh, Terra AD. Here's what you can see with a telescope and this is what we're going to do. Exactly, yeah. and, and it's leveraging some of that rich history that's gone into the, you know, the human race's assassination with Mars as a planet and and for, for so many years. The other thing I, I really love the idea of is this idea of having the players communicate by drawing symbols or shapes into sand and just this, picturing this putting a sand table or tablet out there, almost like a Zen garden thing and saying, this is the mechanism or or mechanic that you can use to try to communicate with this creature, this otherworldly creature that's encountering you. How do you describe what you're trying to do and have them draw it out pictorially or have them draw it out mathematically, whatever they can come up with, it's, it's getting back to this, you know, how can we represent the barriers that are, that Weinbaum describes in some of the story in order to you get that sense of alienness and the idea of him drawing in the sand, drawing the sun and the positions of the planets and trying to communicate that idea. And then, you know, Tweel's interpretation and reiteration of that. I love that. And I I think that you you could use that in a game setting to make it, um, you know, an effective tool for, uh, for transporting your players a little bit.
2: I agree. And actually, if you really stay on top of them, if they try, if they try some of the common laziness, like, well, I want to go that way. So I make an arrow, Okay, well, mm-hmm. is the arrow actually pointing in that direction? It's like a triangle with a line. The line points the other way. This could be any number of things. It doesn't necessarily point in a direction to an alien mind.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love so, the fact that there's no common language here.
2: Yeah, so they can't take those kind of things for granted. And you know, the, the one downside to not using a modern map of Mars is there's actually a small region of Mars named for Weinbaum. And I think that's oh, really neat. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so that's really neat.
3: Useless trivia. It yeah. becomes useful. <laughs> awesome.
2: <laughs> the uh the other thing that I thought of, because I always try and think of, of music, and mm-hmm. swear to God, the only thing that I could think of was the uh, cue music from Space Mountain, which mm. is kind of this almost like bubbling, swirling mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. synth. And I, I, I can't get it out of my head now. And uh, I'm going to post a link to the four-hour loop, so uh, you can't get it out of your head either. But it, it is kind of <laughs> that.
3: Thanks, Bob.
2: <laughs> I, guess, I guess the way to describe the it music is it's kind of that celestial with, with like, you know, a, a, a high-pitched note that sort of slides as others are kind of chiming in.
3: It's almost dreamlike.
2: Yeah, very, very sci-fi dreamlike. It's it, Again, it's what the future sounded like when I was a kid. And, yeah, so four-hour loop,
1: deal with it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> all right
1: well that'll take us i think to dcc inspirations and reskins and what this made me think about a little bit off brand was immediately my mind went to the monster alphabet by michael curtis and mm. drawing yeah. inspiration from wine bombs creatures into a setting you could almost create a Weinbaum alphabet. You know, the it's, it's the, the scientific version of the sci-fi version of the monster alphabet is kind of what I was envisioning in my mind, you know, with, with Michael Curtis as a template for that, because he, he does such a great job with the random tables, with the elements that go into, you know, the different uh, A to Z creatures. Uh, I think it was kind of appropriate that you could, you could take that same sort of format and apply it to wine bombs creatures and get, uh, uh, starting uh, to fill out uh, your own alphabet, you know, reg- regarding what his creatures are. So that's one one place of mine. Oh, remember. nice. Oh, yeah. The other was, um, thinking back to the lines of communication and the otherworldliness is that it made me immediately think of, you know, how Harley Stroh presents the kith in The Purple Planet how do players communicate with the Kith? How do they understand each other? You know, and, and how does this language evolve over time, especially with this aggressive race of these creatures that are they're used to bonding with uh, those they don't see as threats, but also slaughtering anything else they do? And, and the idea that you could take Escape from the Purple Planet, which is the introductory funnel that was written as part of the box set, and yeah. reskin that as... Astronauts landing on Weinbaum's planet, and you know, it's almost becoming a planet of the apes capture of uh, of the astronauts that land there and their escape at that point. But they are encountering these creatures that they have no idea of how to communicate with, but it's it's all set on the Mars setting on Weinbaum's planet. And I think you could easily take uh, what Harley did with Escape from the Purple Planet and fit it into a Weinbaum setting. And I, I just I I love the idea of playing around and <laughs> In in Weinbaum's world, where you know the the astronauts are the the captured starting players, and and they have to find a way to escape at, without their rockets and without their uh, you know their revolvers. I'll, I'll I'll take you one
2: step further. Take the astronauts from Null Singularity. <laughs> and drop them onto the purple planet. Oh, slash wine ball planet. Uh, I got to yep. thinking about that. Cause I was thinking the same Perfect. thing. I'm like astronauts, astronauts, gosh, it'd be really cool if there was something that asked, Oh wait, there's a null singularity. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Let's take yeah. the astronauts from null singularity and drop them here. Although the first thing that, that jumped to my mind, uh, oddly enough, I guess, was they serve Brandolin red. Because if you change the ants into the mound builders and you use just that portion as part of the alien world to explore... Because again, you've got these hive mind creatures that are dealing with scent, not a verbal language that you can really communicate with. And so they're just kind of operating by rote. I thought
3: Wait, do you mean the the mound builders or the um the barrel creatures?
2: The barrel creatures are also referred to as the mound creatures, not the pyramid builders. Oh, the geez. mound builders. Okay. Because again he Okay. He, he labeled them contextually. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought that would be perfect. I think this would be a fun way to reskin not in Kansas anymore. Mm. Ha! <laughs> Rather than on this weird fantasy world, somehow they find themselves transported to maybe Mars, but everything's really strange. And I think that's all these fit. ostrich
3: people. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, like one ostrich people and all yeah. these barrel things and plants. <laughs> I also thought yeah. that you could just take this this section because it's described, because it's Mars, it's all a desert, but he's talking about the deserts he's crossing and the weird things he finds. You could border that off, surround it by water, and it could be a large island in the Swordfish Island chain. You want to draw on the Swordfish Islands. Boom. There you go. Okay, that's, that's the next just one.
3: crazy talk.
2: <laughs> no, no, it's not crazy talk at all. And so, yeah, there's, there's just so much here that you can draw on and play with. What about you, Jen?
3: So there's a quote about the dream beast.
0: Mm, yeah. uh,
3: there was a flurry of tentacles and a spurt of black corruption. And then the thing with a disgusting sucking noise pulled itself and its arms into a hole in the ground. I absolutely love the idea that the corruption, the the black corruption seen in Stephen Newton's Attack of the Frogs and the Haunting of Larvic Island may have spread or even originated here. Ooh. Right to the same effect. Daniel J. Bishop's Silent Nightfall could either be an extension of this place, particularly with the shaft crawler and the Gorillasterix.
2: Screw you! No more Gorillasterix. Uh, Those are tricky <laughs> as hell.
0: No, no. <laughs> no.
2: No.
3: You know, ma- no. maybe maybe Tweel is an outcast because no. he's not a cross. Or... He's nice,
0: <laughs> and friendly, and
2: and he helps people. He is not a nightmarish <laughs> amalgam of like monster <laughs> and owl. Mm.
3: Uh-huh. So it could be an extension of this place or, you know, you could potentially set that exploration in Silent Nightfall and just set on maybe a different planet as opposed to just outside a little village. Those barrel creatures, okay, the mound builders, just mindlessly moving their carts, really brought to mind the mine cars in the way station by mm. David Prashipawa. I hope I didn't mangle that too badly. Also published by Purple Duck Games. Mm-hmm. And uh, besides that yokeless egg... Entry at the Court of Chaos by Mike oh. Curtis, specifically when you consider how things may have gone down if the other scientists on this mission had been the ones left to make contact with each of those creatures.
2: Oh, now that brings to mind a really fun idea, which would be to write a short adventure around the sort of, you know, these few encounters that is played individually by each character at a different date. Right. So go between sessions or it's Mm -hmm. like an hour here, an hour there. It's got to be something real short. And then they have kind of a combating amalgam of what they believe is real and what happened. You could do a lot with something like that. Yeah. They'd each been left to make contact. Why not have them all make contact? That could be interesting. You could have some real twisted consequences. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it get it just definitely evokes you know what Michael Curtis was getting to in his adventure in terms of party interaction and dynamics and and that would be an interesting take on it. What approaches do each of the individuals take for each of these vignettes, and then how does that link all together to to the you know what they when they're ultimately brought back together so
0: yeah.
3: Right, and, and clearly Jarvis was the lawful character of the bunch. We're not sure about the others. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think that brings us to our DCC feature for the show, which is In the Prison of the Squid Sorcerer from Mystic Bull Games. Uh, the individual adventure that that title is written is uh, written by Ken Jelinek, uh, but it's a series of pulp stories 12 in all so bob driven ashore by a supernatural storm
2: the party competes with a pirate and his crew to find the brother of a local noble they soon find that the brother was imprisoned by a god before he could fully bond himself into the service of cthulhu yeah
3: um okay so Going back to the uh, lawful. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right off the bat, I was looking at this because I went through the entire thing and, and looked at other adventures as well. But looking at this one, you could easily connect this adventure and the Sea Queen Escapes through a mystic underwater world using concepts from the Martian Odyssey. Turn the pyramid builder into like some sort of crab or uh, or Nautilus, uh, swap the deserts of Mars from underwater wasteland, it'd be easy to do. And you could drop in any number of additional hooks. You could have them do the Tower of the Black Pearl from the bottom up. This is a, a great little tight adventure that opens up so well and ties really nicely, I think, with, uh, with the story, with the Martian Odyssey.
3: Well, seeing the Dream Beast as maybe a Hydra and being from the plane of water, yeah, would be would be really interesting. Especially if you still set this on Mars or the Purple Planet, and yeah, I, I think you could really go with the amalgam here. You know, <laughs> climbing coral instead of desert dunes. Still going to be deadly for those zero levels.
0: Oh,
2: especially considering how sharp some coral is. You, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, and, and this,
2: this adventure has pirates, so I have to like it, even though there's only a crew <laughs> of six, and that's not right. But,
3: but beyond that. <laughs> well, clearly the crew of the ship here are, well, survivors, and they could parallel the listeners of this tale.
2: Yeah, yeah, they they could. Um, you would have thought, you know, just based on the way this adventure plays out, that they might have learned something. But uh, <laughs> um, the, even the listeners were kind of set in their ways.
3: Yeah.
1: What I love about this uh, this set of adventures is that it's such an early example of DCC at its beginning, trying to find a way to distinguish itself from other role playing games of you know the, of the time, and and this goes yeah, back this to is all the way thirteen. Yeah, to all the way to 2013 when, you know, DCC was maybe a year old. Uh, obviously, they've been in playtesting mm-hmm. for a lot longer than that. But this is the community. This is a Mystic Bull Games production, which is, you know, led by Paul Wolf and obviously has a, a series of collaborators that includes Daniel J. Bishop, as well as, you know, John Wilson is another familiar name from the, from this uh, this group that's part of the community today. But it's really this community oh, that's, yeah. that's taking on what is being presented by this publisher and just running with it, right? Which is which is something that happens and exploded over the course of years of zines and, you know, third party systems and our third party adventures and, and groups and things like that, that is, this is just a, the beginning seeds of that, that it's really fun to go back to the the origins in some cases of, of some of the third party elements that was invigorating the DCC community at that time, which was not as large as it is today and see what was, be presented plus it's it's just a fun series of pulpy vignettes that are very very much in the style of short stories that are mm-hmm. you know very wine bomb-esque and and very very fantastic sort of elements that come into play just very fun for that ability to just sort of sense dcc has so many tools within its uh in its box to present it to to the judge and to players
2: well, and these stories—I mean, once you go beyond the the title adventure, "Icon of the Blood Goddess" by Daniel J. Bishop—if you take the crystalline egg thing retrieved from the mound builders and you use that as opposed to an icon, and it's still you know some alien god, you're good to go. That's the oh, only yeah. change you have to make. Yeah.
3: Who says it's not already an icon?
2: <laughs> well, it's not. A, it's not an icon like in the adventure. Uh, Okay. John Wilson's uh, Shadows of Malagok. It's a swamp crawl, and you could likewise stock that with swamp equivalents of the creatures from Martian Odyssey. You could even still have the pyramid builder, and that would be creepy as all get out as you're going through a swamp, and there's these little pyramids in a line getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, just like it was creepy in the story. Uh, Yeah. Ken Jelinek did Cave of the Ice Mistress, And you could easily use that to represent the heart of the labyrinth of the mound builders. Uh, Rather than Mm. a crystal, this would have a victim to be rescued and, uh, you know, kind of a climactic horrifying foe to face. But all of these things, because they did such a good job capturing the pulp feel and some of the, some of the other adventures are more liber and don't really translate to this particular story, but because they did such a good job capturing that old pulp and appendix and feel a number of these adventures translate very, very well to this story.
3: And you get introductions from Michael Curtis and Harley Strode to right? the original authors. So I was amazed
1: how cool to see that. that. Yeah. When, when I was going back through this copy, I was like, wait, in 2013 oh, yeah. they got Michael Curtis and Harley Strode to do these intros. Like, you know, they were already acclaimed, you know, writers at the time to right. this community. And just that the impact of that and having it be part of the introduction material was great. <laughs> Hey,
2: um something stuck on the mailbee pseudopod, and it looks kind of old.
3: It has one of those sorry, your mail was lost, damaged, transported to another plane of existence tags. What's it say?
1: Uh oh, I can see it. I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you for the great podcast Sanctum Secorum. I usually have a low tolerance for gaming podcasts that you three consistently put out an entertaining, informative, and professional quality show. I love how you combine a love of Appendix N, fantasy, sci-fi, horror books, and share that love with listeners, and then take the extra step of taking those books and making that content gameable. As a librarian who regularly shares a love of reading and tabletop RPGs with teens, I really appreciate your efforts. Happy first year anniversary for the Sanctuary, <clears throat> and may you have many more. <laughs> We gotta we 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 need to kill the mailboy. <laughs> and if there's anything I could ever do to help, please let me know. Sincerely, Stephen Torres Roman. P.S. I am really looking forward to Dark Trails.
2: Okay, that's kind of funny because this is oh, this is old and Dark Trails is finally right, David. That's why you left the show, David. Was <laughs> the Dark Trails, David. So where's my Dark Trails, David? And um, Uh we just celebrated our third anniversary. Maybe Stephen should run our mailbag. back.
1: I think it may have gone to uh, a Martian odyssey for a while and, and taken a rocket's uh, delayed jump to be here. Oh, okay. maybe it was frozen in time. I
3: blame Leigh <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hey, she never got enough credit, so you're going to give her blame?
3: Purple priestess.
2: Okay, that's fair.
1: Well, thank you so much, Stephen Torres, Roman, for your email. And, and hopefully you're still listening. Hopefully so, yeah. <laughs> And hopefully still still introducing uh, people to to RPGs, especially as your role in a librarian. I uh, really love that.
2: I always wanted to be a librarian until I saw the educational
1: requirements.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I think that will take us to your road crew and convention shoutouts.
3: I think we can roll through these. As you know, Judge Jeff has left New York, but the DCC RPG NYC group on Meetup carries on, with weekly games rotating between Judges Hoy, Andrew Sternick, Vasily Kaliman, and David Willems at the Brooklyn Strategist on Saturday afternoons.
1: M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington.
2: Daniel J Bishop and Toronto Crawl Classics are kicking off a mix and match campaign with the Funnel Adventure Idol of the Dawn. Players are encouraged to bring four zero level characters from DCC, MCC, or any other DCC compatible system. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, when the when the guys from Black Sun Death Crawl show up, it's going to be really. <laughs> <insane>. <laughs> um, <laughs> The campaign launches on Tuesday, November 6th, just a couple days from now, with two more funnels to follow on each subsequent second Tuesday before the campaign gets rolling in earnest. It all takes place at the Sword and Board on Bloor Street from 5
3: to 9.30. A great name for a venue. Judge Joan of ARC Troyer is running an open table every Thursday night from 6 to 10 p.m. at Better World Books in Goshen, Indiana, and she's at Secret Door Games in Elkhart, Indiana every other Saturday. And as your continued added bonus, Judge Marlene Whitmer is running on alternate Saturdays.
1: Mike Carlson is running Open Table DCC Games on the second and fourth Mondays of the month at Everybody Reads Books and Stuff in Lansing, Michigan. Games start at 6.30. Tim Lawchrist is running DCC
2: at Blank Comics in Florence, Alabama every other Sunday Next game should be held November 4th. Check with the store for details.
3: Christian Bird is hosting a regular open game on Tuesdays at The Beer Temple in Chicago.
1: Mario Garcia runs a weekly DCC game on Thursday evenings at Fun Again Games in Eugene, Oregon. Congratulations to
2: Jonathan Snodgrass on the release of Star Crawl, a DCC MCC compatible edition to the third-party family of DCC expansions. Look for it in the Goodman Games
1: online store. Want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine? Keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your Piddixon and reading. Remember... We have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions. Zines, modules, even some great appendix in. You can submit your creations to us at the Hub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. Are you running Road Crew Games? Drop us a line to let us know. Even better, join the Guardians of Secrets. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion, and once you have submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets able to enter your events directly into the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as the last year's free RPGJ companion and other secret benefits. Again, that's the hub at Sanctum.media. If you're listening and looking for a game, go to Sanctum.media and click on the Community Events link. Be sure to scroll all the way down for a full venue and host judge information. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, drop us an email. Comment on the podcast, chime in on our G Plus page, but maybe not for long, (laughs) or help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and review can help new listeners find the podcast. Be sure to pay your respects to us on G Plus, mention us on Facebook, wake us up on me, we, and still Mm. ignore us on hello. We've inspired you. Thank you for listening. Be inspired. Good night, guys. Good night, everyone. You have been listening to the
0: Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us next time when the Sanctum Sequorum's doors reopen as we examine Andrew Offit's Gone with the Gods. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2018.